0: to the same topics in a little bit different angle as we go through this. And this is lesson number three in the series, tonight's lesson, The Last Holding Place of the Dead. And I want to give a couple of disclaimers with this. In a way, this is an easy lesson because you can't do anything about it since this is invisible and intangible. And so all I'm going to talk about is what the Bible says about this, and then your interpretation of what that might mean is going to have to be up to you. Uh, I'll try to give some help as what I think it means. But notice this if I say that the that we are a trichotomy body soul and spirit and we're actually not we're just body and soul or body and spirit then me saying there's three parts doesn't change anything and if I end up saying there's two parts and we're actually three then I can't change that either whatever the reality is is going to is going to stay put and there's a handout I had prepared for tonight and that's to help you on your own study at a later time and don't let that scare you because we're not going to cover all that stuff, not in, not in detail. I'll be clicking through it relatively fast as we go through the chart. And you've had these before. About eight years ago I did this uh, this lesson or one like this on the uh, intermediate state of the dead and I think a series on Revelation. So you probably have this chart lost somewhere at home, but uh, maybe this will be helpful Uh, there's a lot of talk we see on, even on YouTube videos where people, even this week I saw one where somebody said I died and went to heaven and so forth and they gave their after-death experience and they came back, you know, or they did it during surgery and we hear all these different claims. And, uh, I saw a documentary back in 2011 or somewhere along in there, um, National Geographic had a documentary called The Moment of Death and In the interviews and in the program they put together, some people had some some wild ideas, and we saw some history there in that that series. Uh, At one time, back in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, stopping somebody's heart was considered murder. And so when medical science came on board and tried to figure out what to do about life and death and disease and all that, then there was this moral dilemma about, well, if we do anything to somebody's heart, is this going to murder them or what do we do about that? And so there was this waiting mortuary that developed because of the fact that some people had catalepsy or had some bizarre sleep disorder or something. They would look like they were dead, but you couldn't tell for sure. And so the, the waiting mortuary kept people around several days because decomposition was the only proof that somebody had actually died. So our question sometimes is, when is death? Is it when we breathe our last breath or think our last thought or when the heart stops? And now with the various heroic measures we have in medical science, nobody's dead immediately, it seems, because we can keep them alive if we want to on a ventilator or some other life support system. And so we have a lot of new vocabulary words there. Uh, we have the phrase, beating heart cadaver, or someone is basically dead In most senses of the word, and yet their heart's still beating, or their ventilator is keeping the thing going, and yet they're not, are they really here with us? And when does the spirit leave the body? We learn that during cardiac arrest, organs and tissues can sometimes remain in what's called a quasi-dead state for several hours. And uh, people have figured out when the body stops producing cells, and when the cell death occurs, and so some have used... Uh, induced hypothermia in studying this to try to slow down the death process or the cell death and then slowly infuse oxygen back in the body and make them get better or well. And s- some people say, well, when you die, you just don't know anything. And in fact, in the Old Testament, there's a phrase, the, the, the dead know nothing under the sun in Ecclesiastes. And one fellow on that program said, the switch is turned off. When you die, the switch is turned off and you're out of the picture. You don't know anything and you have no problems anymore. And you know, when you when you look at the Bible's format of what it teaches, this all sort of stands or falls together. For example, just in my way of thinking, if when a person dies, all that happens is they don't know anything anymore. All that happens is they're unconscious and they are out of the picture, have no more problems. And so... I'm not living with God in heaven right now, so if that doesn't even exist, and the worst thing that can happen to me no matter what I do or how I live is that I just don't know anything anymore. That doesn't even make sense with the moral law or with anything that humanity has to deal with because then it's just uh, a bunch of uh, living beings that can outdo each other and whoever's got the most power and the most weapons and all that can just control society and and there's no no, uh, reckoning. There's no punishment, no... Uh, consequences, And that really doesn't make sense with all the other things we have to struggle with. So we're going to talk some tonight about what the Bible says about the soul and where it goes after after the soul or the spirit leaves the body. Here's one way of looking at this. We see that God gave living matter, existence, this non-living, this inanimate material like this rock here. So you can look at a rock and you know it's different than us and it's not alive, it's not breathing, it's not growing as we say, it's, um, it's non-living it's an inanimate material object, and God created that. But to some forms of life, He gave inanimate material a life form, like these tomatoes here or some other plant, and we say that these things are alive, and we can even see plants respond in some ways to stimuli. We can crumple the leaves on a green plant and then watch those leaves fade away or be bruised or crumpled or the liquid come out or something, the uh, um Sap or something. We can see, see that it's alive. It's not like a rock, but it's not alive like animals are alive. And so we have animals that are living. They're animate, and they have what we might call the breath of life in them and a body. And so if we look at a nice puppy dog we can see that they seem almost human, uh, somehow even more so than cats. But anyway, we look at these animals and we think there's something about them that they respond to us. They seem to almost have emotions or some level of understanding. And then we go up to the outline and see the various life forms and what sequence they are and how the higher life forms are different than the lower ones. Now, right here is where... I think there's a, there's a significant similarity between the animals that have the breath of life and humans that have... They're animated, they're living, and they have the breath of life. But it seems that there's something beyond that, that the Bible teaches that we have an immortal soul or a spirit that lives on after death. And this is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. And here it reads, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, even in this passage, it's very possible, I believe, that spirit and soul are the same thing. But I think it also could very well mean that they're not the same thing. They're very closely related, but I think there's three parts here. But what I think doesn't really matter, and what you go away with is going to be up to you. Maybe they're using spirit and soul to mean the same thing. Just like I was rooting for the hogs, but the Razorbacks just couldn't seem to get ahead and so Arkansas lost the game. Now, using those three different terms, we're talking about the same phenomenon and we just move back and forth. And so maybe he's saying your, your body and your soul and spirit, meaning the flesh and the spirit, two parts, or maybe there's something there. So I think, and this is the way I would diagram it just to try to understand it, and I don't know if this is anywhere near correct, but I would say that animals have what we would call a soulish body Beyond the plants. The plants are alive, but they're not living like animals are living. The animals have the breath of life, is the phrase I would use. They have the breath of life, but they don't have the spirit like the human has. And so in this illustration, I've tried to illustrate it here, that the dog... um, Did I go down one? Yeah, the dog right here would be a dichotomy. The dog would have the breath of life, unlike the plants, and he has a body. And then over here, the human would be the trichotomy, having a soul, the breath of life, like the dog has. It breathes and, and the heart beats and has blood flowing and all that. And then it also has the spirit and the body. And so this is when we're alive. We have this soulish, the, the animal has the soulish body that's like the human in the breath of life, but it doesn't have the spirit that lives on. And then at death, you would have... The body of the dog going to the dust and fading away, not exist anymore. You'd have the the body of the human going to the the dust of the earth, and going away. And I put the word poof up here. So what would you do with the soul? If we say that the human has the spirit that returns to God who gave it, what's happening to the soul? Uh, I think it's part of the same uh, part of the spirit, but maybe it just goes away, like the dog's soul goes away, or the dog's. Breath of life goes away. But see, this is hard to even talk about because if I say a dog has a soul, it sounds like I'm saying they're immortal and they're like humans, and they're not. They're, they just have the breath of life. So possibly there's three parts to the human existence, body, soul, and spirit. And that verse seems to indicate uh, that there is a differentiation between the two. Now, I want to click through this uh, relatively fast, and there's not room on this chart to have all of these passages listed or the book, chapter, and verse. Now, on the back of one of the handouts has a lot more information if you're studying this on your own, and you can look that up. And then at the end of this, we have a second chart that I'll click through even faster, and that's just because it's lined up in a little different graphic, a little different view. But here's a kind of a summary of what goes on uh, with our existence. Life on earth, you have the body and the soul, or should I say body and spirit, united together. Uh, maybe we should say body, soul, and spirit. But anyway, life on earth, you've got the body and whatever's inside of it. And then uh, you have that existence in the kingdom of nature. When a person is born into the world, they live in in this form of of nature, in this uh, natural kingdom. But then as we live, uh, the Bible teaches us that we can be involved in temptation and sin, and we understand that from the Garden of Eden. But we have this L-C-S-D, lust, when it is conceived, brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So that stair-step-down illustration is that we go down from our innocent existence as babies and children, we get involved in sin, and then we are under the power of darkness, and we're living in sin. And then... We see that when we come out of that, if we're taught the truth, that we have faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, the letters there going up, stair-stepping, and that is we are led by faith to repent of our sins. We confess our faith in Christ and confess our sins, and we're baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins, and then that puts us in to the kingdom of Christ or the church. And then death occurs, and that's the separation of the body and the soul, or the body and the spirit, or the body, soul, and spirit. And so that happens. And when that happens then, we have the body going to the grave and it goes back to dust. And then the Spirit goes into a place called Hades or Sheol. And this is the holding place of the dead. That's the phrase I like to use. That when we die, we go into this holding place of the dead. And let me put another bookmark right here. I don't get upset at people when they say at death, like their mother has died or something, and even the preacher may say this, and they say she's now in the arms of Jesus or she's now in heaven. And I don't get all sideways with them or I sure don't tell them, even if I think this, I don't want to say to them, no, you're wrong, they're not in heaven. They're in Sheol or they're in the, this place of the dead and then later they'll go into heaven and there's that distinction. I think the, the Scriptures bear that out. But if you like to think of it in those terms, because if you just look at the big picture, you're either in torment or paradise or hell or heaven or with Jesus or with the devil. You ain't got another third choice. And so to think of them being in, in the presence of God is okay with me. But the Scriptures teach that when we die, the soul goes into either paradise or uh, Tartarus. And we can see the difference in these, uh, term, these terminologies Um, Paradise is also referred to as Abraham's bosom, as we'll see in in Luke 16. And then Tartarus, or torments, is another phrase for the punishment side, or the hellish side, if you will, for those holding the the, the souls or the spirits that are in in waiting for the judgment. Okay, then the aliens that come out of the power of darkness, when they die they're dealing with not having the blood of Christ, not having their sins forgiven. And so they would be going into those the place of the dead, the Tartarus or torments, like the rich man in Luke 16. And then the faithful, oh, well, the infants are next, the infants who are innocent, when they die, they're coming out of this kingdom of nature. They didn't go into lust and, and uh, sin and death and and all that. They are innocent of sins, and so they go into paradise when they die. And then... The unfaithful that are in the kingdom of Christ are sent. As we see this, we'll develop that in our lesson on the judgment day. So the unfaithful at death would go, their soul or their spirit would go into Tartarus or torment. And then, after... That is the resurrection. Now, I need to build this little chart. I got a okay, the resurrection from the dead, and we'll see that in, in one of the last lessons on the last thing that happens as the, the Lord comes again and then there's the resurrection. And then the body and soul are reunited together however God does that, and there's no explanation given to us other than in the awesome power of God to create and put these things into existence, He can also put them back together at His will and His way of doing things that we can't even understand. And so then when the body and the soul, the resurrection brings the body and soul back together, and as Jesus had a resurrected body, we expect to have some kind of resurrected body, as Paul taught about in 1 Corinthians 15, We'll all be transformed. This mortal must put on immortality. So even those who are alive will be changed. They won't go see God in this body. It'll be something else. And then the one that comes from the grave is reunited with the soul of the spirit, or soul and spirit, and then there's the judgment. And then after that, the the eternal destination of the soul or or the spirit in hell or in heaven. So now let's look at some of the New Testament terms for the place of the dead. The Greek New Testament makes a sharp distinction between Hades and Gehenna. But in English, in the King James Version specifically, both terms are translated hell. And so that sometimes is confusing because we see the rich man was in hell. Well, he was in torment, which is in Hades. And there's a, there's a, a specific distinction there, but just reading it in English, sometimes you can't see the distinction. Hades in the New Testament receives the dead for the intervening period between death and the resurrection. Gehenna is specifically the word for hell, known as the place of punishment of the wicked following the judgment. And this place contains the devil and his angels. Also, the book of Revelation refers to it as the abyss, I believe. Now, the clearest picture, and this is one of those amazing things, is like in Luke chapter 2 and the, the account of the angels coming and the, the herald angels announcing the, the coming of the Messiah. And that information is there and that's the only place it is. It's not even any place else in the Scriptures, really, Those detailed accounts of the wise men and the star and the birth and the manger and all that stuff is specific to that chapter and it's all we need. It's the one revelation of God that says this is how it happened and I don't need to tell you ten different ways. I'm paraphrasing what he would be saying to us. And here in Luke 16 we have one of the clearest pictures, actually the only picture of what happens after we die. And this is seemingly immediately after we die, not six months or a year or two or something like that and probably not even weeks or months, but rather, rather very soon. And even that's a relative term, because I don't know if it's one second after death, or if it's two or three minutes. I mean, that kind of thing doesn't even apply, really. But there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. I remember hearing that in the King James. It says, Moreover, the dogs were coming. And this country boy in Logan County was going to name his dog a Bible name. And he said, I'm going to name it Moreover. Moreover, the dog came and licked his sores. Anyway, here's this man in in this situation, so pitiful. And the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham... Far away, and Lazarus in his bosom, and you 'll notice something else there too that there's there 's seemingly a specific twist on this where it 's kind of like when you 're listening to a uh, the narrator, the color commentator in a in a ball game, and you can tell where their bias is, and they 'll say uh, On the team that they're rooting for and that they really like, they'll say, and -and so-and-so, so-and-so, number 29, brings him to the turf. And, you know, just that's the kind of tackle he made. But if it's the team he doesn't like, he says, tackle by number 20. And just leave it at that. And so here we have almost that sort of thing. And he says, here's this precious soul. He dies and he's carried by the angels. to Abraham's bosom. The rich man, he died and he was buried. It's like that's all he got was the end of life. And it's over for him in that sense. And Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, or great gulf, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent." But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And what a powerful concept that is. We have all these shenanigans going on even to this day of people trying to put on a circus act, trying to impress people with the idea of miracles, so-called miracles and various signs and wonders and all that. And the human heart... As he mentions here, if they won't listen to what Moses and the prophets said, they're not going to be impressed with whatever else you try to offer because it's by faith that we come to, to learn of God and obey Him. So remember two things here in this passage. This deals with what he could experience, quote-unquote, in Hades, not on the earth. Uh, that's what Ecclesiastes was talking about, that the dead know nothing at all under the sun, meaning they're not here with us on top of the ground. And I think this teaches, I believe this teaches that the dead, the departed dead, their souls or their spirits are not watching us. Why would they need to watch us? And they're not sitting around talking about our activities. Even though it may be a beautiful idea that my grandpa could watch me preach or watch me catch a fish or something. And I, you know, I might like to think that he's watching, doing that. But the Bible doesn't indicate that there's any purpose in that. And how can they even be in paradise and enjoying themselves if they see me making a mess of my life? So it just doesn't add up. And this also deals with Hades, not with Hell, after the judgment, and this great gulf is fixed so that their condition is permanent and fixed. And whether went and someone says, "Well, that, that doesn't. How can they be in Hell or in a torment, rather, or in paradise? Um, what's the judgment for?" Well, to me, it, it shows them even though they know they're already in paradise and therefore will be saved in heaven, it's still the formality of the judgment of God pronouncing their their final destiny, and also for those who are living. It's almost like getting your credits for graduation. You haven't yet walked the stage. Uh, It's sort of like that in my mind. And so the, the judgment is there to make the final pronunciation. Notice something else that this teaches us in Luke 16, in this only glimpse, real glimpse, we have into what happens after you die. This man could feel. He said, I'm in torment in this flame. He could see. He saw Lazarus afar off in Abraham's bosom. He could talk. He said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. And... And give me some help here. He could hear, because when Abraham responded to him, he responded back to Abraham. And he could remember. He said, I have five brothers back on the earth. And he could recognize Lazarus. So I can go one of either way on this business of, do we recognize each other in heaven? I don't see why we couldn't. But I don't see why we would enjoy it or what difference it would make, especially when we're not marrying or giving in marriage and we don't have bodies like this. And in heaven, that's different than in this paradise or this torment. So possibly they could recognize each other there and not in heaven, but I can't prove that either way. It it, it sounds like it would be okay with me if we recognize each other, but again, I don't know what the purpose would be. Um, That doesn't mean we can't just because I don't see the purpose in it. Now let's look at this one. This is another diagram of the same thing. And let me just click through this. Here on life on earth, you have the body and the spirit, or body and soul and spirit united. God is the Father of our spirits. And uh, He forms the Spirit within us and He gives us our life, our breath of life, and we become a living soul, our living spirit. And then when physical death happens, then the soul and the body are separated <clears throat> and we see that the soul, the spirit goes into Abraham's bosom if it's on the paradise side or in torments or Tartarus if it's in the um, punishment side. And then those souls that are there await the resurrection, and the body in the grave is awaiting the resurrection. And so somehow God raises us from the dead, takes our soul, our spirit, and our body and puts them together to stand before Him in judgment. And then as the body and spirit are reunited, we go into the judgment. And we'll see that uh, next week, I believe it is, in, in the series. And so in that case then, paradise, heaven actually Paradise has given way to heaven and, and in the presence of God we're there forever in paradise or in, in the joys of heaven. In hell, in Gehenna, there is this separation from God and we'll see that as our final lesson in, in the series. I think one of the big takeaways in all of this is what was, what was given to us in the scene of the rich man being in torment and remembering, I'm in, I'm in pain and agony and I don't want my brothers to end up like this. I want somebody to warn them And basically the answer was they're already being warned. They've got Moses and they've got the prophets. And if they won't listen to them then they won't listen. If they saw a miracle, they'd think it wasn't a miracle. If they've got such a heart that they will not listen to the living Word of God presented by Moses and the prophets, then nothing else is going to impress them. And so I believe that's why we get to the passage in the New Testament where and Peter says that there remains no more sacrifice for sin. If we sin willfully, and it's not mean it doesn't mean that we can't repent, but it means that there's not any other sacrifice. And if we reject the only one that was given... God doesn't have a plan B that says, well, if you don't like the idea of Christ on the cross, let me see if we can come up with something else that you will like. Instead, it's like this is what I offered, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then it's up to us to say, I believe and I will obey. And so we have not only Moses and the prophets, we have Christ and the apostles. And notice something else. There is something to all this because it's not just that we want to be saved, which is a positive thing. And I like some people like to emphasize the positive. We get to go to heaven. We get to be with God. And that's a wonderful thought. And i I rather emphasize that. But there's the other side of the reality, the, the flip side of the same coin, and that is if you don't get up there, then you end up in Haiti or in Gehenna hell in eternal torment. And we have to prepare ourselves for that day. Well, this is more like a class, I think, tonight in some ways. But um, I want to offer the invitation of the Lord because we always want to give people the opportunity when we're gathered like this to have prayer on your behalf. If you need prayer or want to ask for prayer or if you need to be baptized into Christ, everything is ready, we can do that. Anything you need that can help you be prepared for the great day that's coming. So we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement now if you need to respond, if you'll come while we stand and while we sing. Would you live for Jesus and be